How are y'all? That was probably one of the better ones you've ever done. That was good. All right, good. It's going to be a good morning. Man, oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Amen. Amen. I love that. Um, hey, let's dive into our Savior's letters for us, all right? Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, if you do not own a Bible, we want you to take and keep that. It's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word, so uh, please take that home along with you. You can also follow along on your smartphone if you wish. If you have the Version app or the Bible app underneath the events section, type in the Well Austin. You can follow along that way. Uh, or if you do not have that app, you can actually take this link and put it right in your browser, and you can follow along that way. There's places for notes, the scripture, uh, all those things. Essentially, we want your eyes on the Word. We say that every week, but we mean that. We want you to look at the Word in whatever way is most comfortable to you uh, so that you can see that I'm not just up here making stuff up, but that we uh, are actually trying to submit to uh, our Savior's letters for us that we may know and worship Him more. All right? So, We are kind of rounding third base, all right, heading for home uh, in our First Timothy series, and so uh, we are going to be continuing that. Uh, Today we're going to be talking some more about order in the church. So uh, last week we hit on the importance of order or uh, structures or systems, and mainly dealing with how can we be put together as a church to most effectively be able to reach as many people as possible and serve those who actually need to be served. What does it look like for the church to, to gather? to organize together to serve those who need it. Um, And Paul lays out some more instructions for the church this week, but what he's mainly going to be focusing on is kind of elders and and their role and how to interact with elders in the church and also sin and uh, sin's uh, role in the church, particularly within the elders, but with us as a whole. And and what do we do within that? What is the the correct order or structure uh, to handle sin? All right. And so 1 Timothy chapter 5, and uh, we are going to pick it up. In verse 17, Paul says this, Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, now, can I be straight up honest with you guys before we even start? All right, I guess not. Let's just keep moving on then. (laughs) All right. Uh, So let me be honest, all right? This is, for me personally, kind of uh, an awkward uh, uh, sermon, if you will, Uh, partly because that word honor there, uh, we talked about this last week in the widows, but the Greek word honor, tima, is always uh, implied financially honor along with sort of uh, respect or uh, just honor the way we normally use the word. And so it's awkward uh, because we're going to be talking about paying those who do ministry, especially the elders that preach and teach the word, and I'm an elder, and I am currently preaching and teaching the word, and so I'll be awkwardly, uncomfortably sort of talking about myself in third person along with the ministry as a whole, and so this honestly, it genuinely does make me kind of uncomfortable. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to laugh at all my jokes, all right? That was a good start. Good job. Thank you. All right. And help me feel better there. All right. So uh, Paul begins by laying out how the church should respond to and sort of handle elders as a whole. And he starts off with the positive here. He starts off with the elder that's doing a good job. Those who uh, do well should be treated well kind of all around. A couple of quick points to highlight. I want to dissect verse 17 some. First, look at the word rule there. All right. Uh, Essentially, this word means those who run the church well. They're overseers 
elders is another word for elder. They, they uh, uh, look at all the systems and structures that we've been talking about, and they handle and organize and manage those well. They administer, they orchestrate well kind of within the church. Contrarily, though, Paul says, especially, all right, those uh, who teach and preach. So that uh, denotes a different function, if you will, the function of preacher and teacher. Essentially, you have elders that function in various different ways. And as the church has gone on historically, we've uh, uh, had more ways that elders kind of function. John Calvin, uh, uh, Puritan, uh, 16th century, uh, century, he calls them ruling elders versus teaching elders. And in common language, what we tend to use is the word elder versus pastor. A pastor tends to be somebody who's uh, on staff and who does the work of the word ministry and meets with people, preaches and teaches, uh, tries to help us submit to the person and work of Christ. And the elder, generally speaking, in a lot of churches are those who are more so the overseer. Regardless of the position or function, though, Paul says that elders who do well are to be honored, right? He says worthy is the next term I want to look at. Um, Sometimes uh, for various reasons, you can't adequately give an elder uh, the honor that they're due. Okay, so for example, remember the word honor carries with it the idea of paying them as well. Uh, when we first planted the church, uh, I was not paid by the church. Okay, in fact, for the first two and a half years of the church being in existence, uh, I was not paid by the church. And so what I did was I actually raised support uh, externally and had a lot of different people supporting uh, me and therefore us that we may do the work of the ministry. And so I was working hard. Honestly, the starting of the church was probably the hardest I've ever worked in my life. It's very, very hard to kind of get it off the ground and running. But uh, so I was worthy of it, but it was uh, an inability to actually pay me because our income that year was less than what a college student tends to make. All right. And so we were kind of low on that. And so other times elders are kind of functioning as elders, but uh, they're not working fully within the church. So Paul did this often when his tent making ministry. He was a temporary elder at some churches, but he was not getting paid by those churches to try to even honor them as a church. And even on our staff or on on our board, if you will, we have uh, four elders. I am one of them. I am paid by the church, but the other three are lay elders. So they have full-time jobs, they work, and and, and they're not getting paid a dime from the church, okay? So ultimately, though, even if the church can't financially support the elders or if their role doesn't necessarily connotate financially, financial support, they are still worthy, that word there, of uh, honor in some way. They are, they are worthy of respect. They are worthy of, they deserve to even be paid maybe even or deserve respect. And so we should treat them well, right? Now, question may be why? Why is it that we should treat uh, the elders well? Well, Paul goes on to say it's because they labor is the next word, right? Paul says they labor for the church. Paul could have used other words to uh, insinuate work here. There are many other Greek words he could have used, but instead he chose this term labor. Why? Well, despite what many people think, ministry is hard, hard, hard work sometimes, right? Uh, I've had people that uh, have said things to me like, so what do you do all day? Right, which kind of insinuates like you just go in coffee shops and like read your Bible and pray and drink coffee. I'm like, yeah, I do drink a lot of coffee and that's a great, a great perk of ministry, right? But that's not all that one does. Ministry is actually really, really hard work, right? Um, and so even more than that, in verse 18 there, uh, Paul relates the elder to an ox. Now, oxen are not cute, Right? 
Now, some of our elders may be good looking, all right? But the, the work, I said some, you notice that? Our elders are good looking, all right? But like the, the, the work of ministry is not a cute uh, work, right? You're never gonna win a beauty pageant for doing what you're supposed to be doing. Oxen aren't really honored as being like uh, uh, delightful or beautiful workers, but they get the job done. Right, really what you do with an oxen is you take a yoke, you throw it around its neck, and then you sit on the back and smack its butt with a whip. Right? And sometimes ministry kind of feels like that a little bit. And so Paul says, look, they're laboring kind of like an ox is laboring. And just like an ox should at least eat some of the grass that is gone before them, Paul says in Corinthians, hey, if I sow amongst you spiritually, shouldn't you sow amongst me physically? Like, isn't the spiritual so much more important than the physical? And so shouldn't there be some sort of honor here? And so Paul uh, quotes the Old Testament to draw out that principle. Furthermore, Paul says that they should be doubly honored, okay, another word. Um, I think the connotation here is really simple. We kind of talked about it already, but uh, financially and then also uh, to recognize recognizing them or treating them with respect, treating them with honor, right? Like really uh, highlighting them in some ways. Here's a common myth that I think happens for some reason in the church. We are afraid uh, as a, a people of God of pride. And so what we tend to do is we tend to under honor some people because we're afraid that if we tell them things like, wow, you're doing a really, really good job, that their heads will get bloated and they'll walk around like a bobblehead, right? And so instead of honoring them in the way that we should, we kind of hold back if they're doing good. But if they're doing bad, we make sure that somebody knows about it right? Like that's not helpful in a lot of ways. And so honor doesn't just have to be financially, but you can even honor them in your words. If the elders are serving you, if you're realizing things that are going on, if you're blessed by the word taught, if you're whatever it may be, like to honor them is actually really, really helpful. What it actually usually does is it actually usually serves as a motivator to help them actually work even harder and even more. All four of the elders, myself and the other three included, have all at some point said something along the lines of, man, I don't know if I can keep up this pace right now. Or man, this is really, really, really hard. And usually what happens is that one of you all sends an encouraging email or, or uh, uh, talks about something that God has done in their life or, or we see a prayer request answered in miraculous ways and, and it kind of gives us fuel to go on. And so in a lot of ways, when you honor uh, leaders, then it's kind of like putting gasoline in the car that they may keep going the long haul. And so this actually then therefore is awkwardly self-serving to you, not in a negative way, but in a positive way. As you encourage them, they're actually going to probably be more committed to serving you more and more and more, which is for your joy too, right? And so there's a, a, a dual thing there. So we should honor them or encourage them and whatever it may be. Now, outside of ruling and, uh, or oversight and preaching and teaching, what should an elder actually be doing? Like, like what denotes honor? How do you know whether or not you should honor an elder? Because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we looked at the qualifications of an elder. That's how they should get into the position. And here, Paul is talking about honoring them. But in this letter, it doesn't necessarily fully state what an elder actually does, minus kind of oversight, preaching and teaching. So flip over with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, and we're going to pick it up in uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. So 1 Peter chapter 5, and then verse 1 there. So Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you, 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, elders, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So an elder is a shepherd taking care of the sheep, giving them food or water or comfort or discipline when necessary or whatever it may be. They're they're shepherding the sheep just like a shepherd does to his sheep. An elder has oversight, Peter uses that word, but not because he has to, but because he wants to. There's something compelling him within that really makes him want to serve the church in a certain way. A leader should not be a leader because they have to be a leader of the church. Now, unfortunately, some of you have probably seen that before, right? Somebody goes into ministry and they're 21, they're 45, they no longer really want to be in ministry, but they don't have any other skills. And so they're like, well, what do I do? And they're just kind of stuck in that position and they have to be. I was talking with a guy uh, a couple of weeks ago who is a pastor of a church, and he was saying that the other pastor literally told his congregation, the only reason I'm here is that I can teach the word on Sunday. Please don't talk to me besides that. And he did all these really weird things, like he built a little carport right next to the entrance where it was only for him, and if you parked there, you got your car towed, right? Like, and all these weird things. It seems like that's under compulsion, or like there's a have to, or there's some weird domineering or, or, or bad oversight there. And Peter Peter's saying that's the exact opposite of how an elder is supposed to look. They should uh, uh, not desire shameful gain or be greedy. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3 talks about how uh, you uh, uh, should not be greedy for money if you're an elder, and, and Peter is saying the same thing here. And so while they should be paid if they could, they should not be greedy, or they should not be in the ministry for a different reason other than to serve the people of God. When I first graduated college, uh, Uh, at Bowling Green State University, I studied supply chain management. And supply chain management is a business kind of like purchasing on steroids. And uh, what happens is uh, that Bowling Green is one of the top supply chain schools in the nation. And so all these, you know, companies come and they kind of make their pitches and stuff like that. And I did not care about uh, uh, supply chain management. I was literally in it because I went too far into the program. And then in order to change my major, I would have had to have stayed an extra year. I was not trying to stay in college because I had senioritis when I was a freshman. All right. And so I was like, I'll just finish this. Okay. So anyway, uh, John Deere comes in and they're offering all this stuff. And they offered me uh, personally. And some of it was just straight up, honestly, like a a racial thing. They had to hit some quotas and stuff. And they just said, look, we're going to offer you $81,000 to start. All right, and then uh, you get $10,000 per year for the first five years afterwards, all right? So you do the math there, right? You're making a good amount of money, okay? Instead, I moved down to Austin, worked at a church called Hill Country Bible Church and was making $20,000 a year, (laughs) all right? That is a big, 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 big difference there. Now, I don't say that to boast by any means. That's not why I'm telling that story. What I'm telling it for is that an elder really should care far more about the people of God than any other perk or anything else that may come out of ministry. Like if you're in this for selfish gain, be it financially or maybe because you want the praise of people or whatever it may be, you're in it for the wrong reason, Peter says. You should be in it because you have a deep desire. There's something inside of you that says, I literally do not care about $81,000. I would so much rather serve the people of God. That has to be uh, welling up within you. That, and let's be honest, could you imagine your boy working at John Deere? (laughs) 
That ain't happening. That ain't happening, let's be honest. I went into a store once, and they were playing country music, and I thought, I will not work three days here, man. I'll, like, chop my ears off before I'm done. So uh, there's probably some of that too, right? But listen, like, like an elder has to care about the people of God, right? Um, and let me say this, so that we are straightforward here, so I'm not uh, throwing some underlying things in here. Um, even still, as a pastor, I'm making significantly less than what John Deere offered my first year out of college. At the same time, though, I will say this. You all as a church, and particularly the elders that are here in this church, has been doing a great, great job of making sure they honor you all and that they honor me as preaching, teaching elder, okay? We uh, ended my support early because we were doing healthier as a church than we anticipated. Uh, that every single year, the elders are trying to bring me up to what would be a more normal salary for somebody in my position. And to be honest with you, every single year I fight it. I'm like, ah, oh, we don't need that. We could do something else. Let's just do something else. This year, uh, I tried to fight it. And one of them literally at one point said to me, I really don't care what you think. Like, this is what we're going to do. Like, <laughs> dang, bro. <laughs> like, right. But uh, the elders had to be willing to sacrifice though. Now there is honor that is deserved. And if it's worthy of it, and they should have that at the same time, the elders should have to sacrifice. See why it's awkward because you're doing this dance. There's worthiness that comes in, but there has to be that not, uh, uh, that desire, that selfish desire in your heart has to be absent. And so there's that dance that goes on there, right? Ultimately the heart needs to be for the sheep. Okay. Now listen to me. And I mean this, I won't say this is the one thing. There's one other thing. This is maybe the second thing. If I want you to get one thing, I want you to get this. All right. Man, I love you guys a ton. And the elders of this church, they love you all a ton. Like, the amount of sacrifice and energy that they spend on you, they all have full-time jobs. They all have kids and, and grandkids. They all have uh, other things that are going on and they labor and labor and labor away. There is a deep, deep affection. And I love that. Like, I don't say I love you guys at the end of my sermon to try to be cute. That's not why I'm saying that. I want you guys to hear that because I mean that. Like I genuinely have a deep affection outside of my wife and my children. You all are my treasure and my joy. I want to see us collectively as a body begin to know Jesus in unrealistic ways, in ways that we did not think was possible before we came in here. And we grow deeper and deeper into an affection and into a love for Jesus. Like that has to be the heart of an elder ultimately. And so I want you all to know that that is genuinely my heart for you all. And I hope that there's no selfish or greedy ambition that creeps into that. A pastor should feel this way. They should eagerly serve, not domineer, but be an example. Do what it takes. Even if what it takes means suffering, they should suffer willingly and even desirably at times for the sake of the church. Leaders who do this should be honored. They should be respected in those ways. One of the things is that the elders truly do get, do this and they don't even get a dime, right? Like the other three elders do not get a dime. And so it's important that we do this. Not to fret though, even if there's not a dime in it, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4 is a beautiful promise for those who are in this position. I'll let you read that later, okay? So this is the positive side of how to treat an elder. That's the, the positive. But what happens when an elder isn't worthy of honor? What happens when a leader in the church or specifically an elder uh, isn't doing what God has called them to do as an elder? Or worse, what if that elder is in continual sin or some sort of gross sin? By gross, I mean a, a big sin, right? Some adultery or money laundering or things that are really, really bad or just a continual presence of sin. What do you do if an elder 
isn't necessarily worthy of honor because ultimately in a room this size, I'm assuming, not I'm assuming, I know some of your stories that you've been hurt by men who are in a leadership position who have used that position to exercise lordship over you instead of to sacrifice and to serve like crazy. What do you do when those things tend to pop up? Well, Paul talks about that. Go back to 1 Timothy. Um, and we're gonna read the rest of our section here. So start picking up in verse 19 again. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not uh, cannot remain hidden." So firstly, Paul just gives wise advice of admitting a charge and not doing that unless there's more than one witness. Essentially, uh, there are some people who would try to tear down the name uh, of, of a man or a woman in leadership just because they don't like something that happened. I said that one of the elders' functions is discipline, and sometimes discipline does have to happen, and people might not respond to that really well, or, or maybe they're actually just convicted by the word of God, but yet they lash out at the leader. So Paul's given some, some honest wisdom here. Hey, hey, don't admit that charge. Now listen, he's not saying don't listen to people. Like if somebody comes and says something about, say, Paul, one of our elders here, and they say, hey, here's what's going on. I can listen to them. I just can't go admit the charge, see that word that I can't uh, uh, take action on it unless that proves to be true, okay? We don't have time to go into this today, but if you want to write down Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21, that's what Paul is using for this evidence, if you will. He's taking an Old Testament principle about two to three witnesses and applying them to an elder. So Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. You can look that up later. But what are you doing if they do sin though? Like what happens if two or three witnesses come and say, hey, here's what this elder is doing? Or what happens if one person comes and then we kind of investigate and probe and we realize that that is actually true? What do you do? Paul says, you rebuke them in front of everyone. Now why? Right? It seems kind of harsh there. Well, because the position of elder is a serious position, therefore, the sin that an elder commits is a serious offense before the people of God. Peter told us that elders are supposed to be examples for us. Well, if their example is sin, then we have to say that is not true. Like that's not how the people of God should act. We should not as a people be okay with or be comfortable in continual or any sort of gross error. Now notice I keep using that word continual because all of us sin, right? Like, like just follow me around today after church and you'll find at least two or three errors that I do. But if there's an unrepentant heart, if there's a continual act over and over and over again, if there's not a desire to be made right with Christ and submit to the word, then man, that is not an example before all the rest of us because scripture makes it clear how we are to respond in Christ. We are to be holy. We are to be set apart. We are to be made more like him. And if an elder who's supposed to be our primary example of this is not doing that, then you have to tell people that. He's supposed to be leading you, and instead, he's leading you in the exact opposite way that he's supposed to be. 
right? Uh, 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 all of you, sin should be taken seriously, and all of you probably have either heard of a story or been personally hurt by a story where a leader was allowed to be in continual sin, unchecked, and then you personally were, were the culprit of that pain. You personally got hurt by it. I had a meeting uh, 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 about a year ago with a girl where after five minutes of meeting with her, uh, she just started breaking down and was crying. Okay, she was just bawling, 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 right? And that's either like a really, really good because that means the Holy Spirit's working or man, you're about to get hit over with a plank, right? I didn't know which one it was. I don't even really know her well at all. And so she's like bawling. I said, hey, like what, what's wrong? Like what's going on, you know? She said, the last time that uh, I sat with an elder or a pastor, uh, it was because uh, there was somebody in the church who uh, was molesting uh, young girls. And uh, we found out about it and we told somebody and then they kicked us out the church. And because of that, I haven't been following Christ since. Now recently, she went on to say, like, I feel like God's been kind of working on my heart, but I'm terrified of what you're going to say to me. Um, there are a few things on earth that make me want to cuss more than that. If we weren't recording, I would cuss right now, <laughs> all right? Like what in the world is going on there? This girl's testimony was, I have not been following Jesus all these years because, because of somebody in the church, because of a leader who is supposed to be a leader, who is supposed to protect and take care of and comfort the sheep instead, for whatever reason was going on there, decided to kick them out the church when this thing came out to be true. I'm sure many of you, maybe not to that extreme, but have had experiences or have heard of experiences like that. The number one thing that I get when I'm interacting with people who are not following Christ, that is a reason why they do not want to follow Christ, is because there's some sort of pain from the church, right? And I see a lot of you nodding your heads like, yes, that's true for me too. As I interact with people, it's like, ah, like, you know, I, I just, I got hurt by the church. And as you hear their stories, it's just over and over and over again. Sin is serious and it's destructive and therefore it should be handled and taken seriously. Go to Romans chapter two really quickly, because this is true, not just of elders, but of all of us as a whole, the sin in our life that we allow to just uh, uh, steep in, where we allow it to marinate in our souls, that does unbelievable damage, not just to you and not just to your own soul, but also to people around you. Like sin is destructive, far more destructive than we get it credit for. It destroys, okay? Look at Romans chapter two, pick it up in verse 21. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. When people are in gross air and sin, the name of God gets drugged through the mud by people who do not believe in God. Sin should be called out. Sin should be dealt with seriously because it's a serious offense. People are walking away and trying to stay away from God because of that, right? Paul gives an even stronger charge in verse 21 to make sure that Timothy gets this. If you go back to 1 Timothy 5, he says, in the presence of God and of Jesus and of the elect angels, 
Like, can I make my point really serious, Timothy? And the presence of God the Father and the presence of Jesus the King and even all the angels in heaven, you need to do this without prejudging. Do, do not show partiality. Protect your people, Timothy, by calling out sin in leaders if it's present. This is what you need to do. Is that hard? You're dang right it's hard. Is that scary? Is that confrontational? Yeah, it is. Nobody wants to do that, but that is far worse than you kind of not calling it out. The name of God being blasphemed amongst the Gentiles and even in our own hearts is far worse than you having to deal with sin, even on a public manner. Now, some of you may not fully feel the benefit of this, or maybe you haven't uh, dealt with somebody who has uh, committed gross sins or continual sins. You don't feel that same pain, okay? The reason why Paul is writing this is because, listen, he wants you as the church to feel protected and loved. Family, listen to me, okay? There is, n- there is no place on earth, no place on earth where you should feel more protected, cared for, and loved than in the household of God. There is no other place where you should feel like I can be me. No facade, no, I don't have to worry about the sin that I'm struggling with. I can come clean and say, can you help me? I can wrestle with my unbelief. I can be loved and supported and cared for. Like that should happen in the church more than anywhere else. And so it's serious when that begins to get disrupted, particularly by leaders who are supposed to be the main ones encouraging that, Paul says, man, call that out. This is why it has to happen, that, that you may feel loved and that other people may not step up into the position of elder unjustifiably. Like if you start calling out sins, like if I got up here today and said, hey guys, sorry, we're not gonna do a sermon today. I just gotta talk about Jake Ridley some, right? <laughs> He's sitting in the first row, so he's the easiest elder to pick on, right? <laughs> and I just start walking that through. Like, that's uncomfortable for us, but, but we would have to do that. Everybody else in here who has a little bit of selfish inkling, like, ooh, I want the praise. Ooh, I want people to honor me. They'd immediately be like, never mind, I don't want that. <laughs> right? It protects the church even from people who would step up into that. It scares people away who are in it selfishly. So you should feel safe within a church family. If we honor elders who, who do this well, who protect, who care for, who shepherd, who lay down their lives, then you will feel more and more and more safe because they will create the space and they will set the atmosphere. This is how we are to respond in a church. Contrarily, because his position is public, his sin is therefore public. And if it is continual or unrepentant, it should be dealt with publicly. That's what Paul is saying, okay? Timothy couldn't show partiality. He couldn't do it prejudgingly. He had to make sure he did this right. And so if one of our elders are in sin, I got to call that elder out. I can't be afraid just because of their position or whatever it may be. So say if Michael's the only other elder I haven't used today, if he's in sin, right, I need to call him out in that. I can't be worried about like keeping up like our, our, our black elder quota or something, all right? That's not a thing, by the way. <laughs> That's why you should stick to your notes right there, right? Okay, like we can't be afraid to call it out. We can't do things prejudgingly or with partiality. We gotta make sure that we treat everybody the same in that way, okay? Sin is destructive and so should be removed. Look at me in my eyes, okay? Look at me. Elders, look at me. If I end up in some grave and serious sin or if I end up in unrepentant sin, Remove me immediately. My God, help us if we would care more 
about publicity or about uh, 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 charisma or about whatever it may be over the destructiveness and the seriousness of sin. If you have something against me that you feel is sinful, that you feel like I'm wronging, please go bring that to our elders. Elders, remove me. If that's serious, if that's unrepentant, this is a serious matter. You should feel safe in the household of God, family. This is serious. And so Paul is being serious about it, okay? Now, I'm super deep into this, sorry. Let's pull out a little bit, right? Like, I love you guys. I wanna make sure that we're protected in this. Now, Paul says that you shouldn't be quick to lay hands on an elder, all right? In the black culture, to lay hands on either means you're getting a spanking from your mom or you're getting whooped on at school, all right? I'm about to lay hands on that boy. That's what that means, all right? Here, what it means is ordaining, okay? You should not uh, ordain an elder too quickly to lay your hands on and to bless them. So Timothy's saying, hey, or Paul's saying, Timothy, if you do this, you're actually taking part in their sin. That's why at the well, our elder process is about a year long. Because at the end of that year, I need to know their sin struggles, their gospel fluency, their victories in Christ, their wrestling, their family life, their devotion life, more than I know almost anybody else's. You got to make sure that you're not uh, incorrectly putting people in position who can happen to end up hurting the church. N.T. Wright says this, it's easy in a fit of enthusiasm to ordain someone, but it's tragic when it becomes clear that the person wasn't ready to have to discipline them afterwards. That's true. It's just tragic for the church. If I got up today and started talking about an elder, that would hurt us, right? We'd feel, man, I love that guy. What's going on? It would create this weird vibe for a while. Like it's tragic. And so you have to make sure that you're uh, uh, not hasty and laying on in the hands, okay? Um, As a total quick tangent side note, all right, over here. I'm over here real quick. All right, here's a sermon, okay? Um, uh, If you happen to miss the sermon uh, on elders and the qualifications of an elder, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. Just in general, I would encourage you, if you miss a Sunday, to listen to the sermon. Because what happens is often certain things kind of build on top of one another. So Paul's assuming knowledge that if you miss that sermon, we may not fully have. Now, missing doesn't uh, uh, account for everything because the preaching is about one-eighth of what happens here. But at least getting one-eighth is better than zero-eighths, right? Like, and so we're more mobile as a culture than ever. That's fine. Praise the Lord. Because in his providence, he's also given us the ability to keep up in some ways, right? So total side note, but oftentimes when we do sermon series like this, it so builds on top of one another that it's important to kind of hear that we may understand the word more. Okay. Back to verse 23, right? Paul says, (laughs) Timothy, right, is his whole instruction. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. What the heck does that have to do with anything, (laughs) right? Like, it seems like everything is kind of flowing along and then all of a sudden this pops in, right? Like I was sitting with Chris uh, this week and I said, did Paul just like go to the bathroom and get distracted and then come back? Like, where was I at? You know, and thinking about, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, right? Um, Here's my best best understanding of uh, verse 22, uh, or verse 23. At the end of verse 22, Paul says, keep yourself pure. And then he goes into what seems like kind of a random tangent side note, right? He says, by the way, uh, 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 make sure you use a little bit of wine. I think what's happening here is Paul told Timothy earlier in the elder qualifications, hey, elders should not be addicted to much wine. 
They should make sure they keep themselves pure by, by not being addicted. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, Timothy, I know I told you that you shouldn't do this, but for your sake that you may be more effective in ministry, make sure that you use some. What Paul is doing is he's given some practical wisdom wrapped up within this idea of elders because Timothy himself is an elder. Timothy's the preaching, teaching elder of the church of Ephesus is where they are. So stay pure, be an elder that's worthy of honor, be an elder that, that doesn't have to be called out for some continual or, or gross sin. But I want to make sure you stay healthy too, because you're like out of ministry half the time because you're always sick. So use a little bit of wine, but don't be addicted. Don't use too much. I think that's what Paul's doing there and what the seemingly tangent thing has to be. You have freedom. Enjoy it, Timothy, but don't be a slave to it, which isn't the same true with us. We have freedom, say, to use wine, to drink, to enjoy that. Don't be a slave to it, friends. Some of you have allowed Satan to deceive you into thinking that, oh, I have freedom, I can do this, and you end up getting hurt by it over and over again. The same thing that's true with Timothy is the same thing that's true for all of us. Sin is serious. We've got to make sure that we're careful around it. But Paul is giving him liberty and freedom um, to, to do this, okay? Paul then ends by telling Timothy, everything, every sin, every good deed will be laid out at the end. When Jesus comes, everything will be clear and everything will be exposed in its full. So if you're doing good and you're not being honored or recognized or, or, or given the, 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 the money or the respect or whatever it may be that is due to you, hey, don't worry, Paul says. That's going to be exposed one day. The omniscient savior who sees everything, uh, who knows everything in his omniscience and omnipresence, like he is going to reward us for our good deeds. Don't fret. At the same time, even if there are sins that are not being found out, even if there are hidden sins that we don't know, Jesus sees it. And one day he will punish those sins there will be a loss of reward or even worse, a loss of connection with him for eternity. There will be a lack of, of joy experienced in the presence of the Savior. There will be a lack of eternal life. And so we see that, hey, even if there's some things that can't be found out, Paul's saying, don't worry, Timothy. God sees, Jesus sees. And as the just judge, he will judge all things rightly. So if you're doing good things, you feel like, man, I'm serving in children's ministry every other week. Man, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. I don't feel like I'm being honored. Hey, Listen, A, we should be honoring you. We're sorry about that. But Jesus sees it. He's going to reward you, friends. If you think, ah, nobody sees me in this sin, or if you are continually in some unrepentant sin, friends, it is far better to come into the safety of the church and confess those sins that you may be healed from them than to carry them all the way until judgment day and you stand embarrassed before God and before us because it will be exposed. Everything that's in the dark will come to the light and all the world will see it, scripture says. Man, sin is serious, right? Like I know it feels heavy, it should feel heavy. Sin is destructive, it's serious. We hurt God, we hurt the people that he loves through our sins. So Paul's saying, hey, it's gonna be exposed. Make sure that, that, that you know this, that you understand this, that you have confidence that God knows what he's doing, but at the exact same time that you're fervent to make sure that, man, people are rewarded with good things, not with bad things, particularly the elders, they do that. So 
There we go. This is how you treat elders, okay? The good ones you honor, the bad ones to protect the church, you call out their sins in front of all that we may expose them that everybody else may feel protected. Now, ultimately, all of us can relate to this because all of us have to deal with elders if we're in a church and all of us should aspire to be leaders in our own measure, whatever that may look like. Now, we could stop here, okay? But if you've been coming to the well for more than two weeks, you know, right? Man, there's something beautiful sleeping in these pages. There is a beautiful piece that we cannot miss. Friends, isn't Jesus the true and ultimate elder? We already talked about this in chapter three, right? He's the elder that fulfilled every single elder qualification. Well, look at this. Go to Matthew chapter 14. Jesus, the true and ultimate elder, the true elder that is actually fully worthy of respect was doing ministry. He's about halfway through his ministry here. And he's been serving people like crazy. He's been honoring people. His great friend at the end of uh, chapter 13, John the Baptist just died. John the Baptist was his forerunner. He was the person that went before him that actually baptized Jesus. There's all of this uh, 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 important things going on. Jesus is tired, weary as a man, probably wanting to go off and even grieve the death of his friend to rest a little bit. And here we go. Chapter 14, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there into a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Jesus was tired, but he labor stilled right? He still labored. Jesus was tired all throughout. This is not the only story. He says that there were times where he was tired, but he saw the people were like sheep without a shepherd. And he, he couldn't help it. In his heart, he cared so much for the people of God that even when he was hurting, even when he was tired, he labored still. He labored still. Friends, Jesus is the true laborer that is truly worthy of our honor, not just double honor, but, but triple honor, all honor, right? If an earthly elder who labors like an ox for the people of God is worthy of double honor, how much more is the true and greater elder Jesus worthy of all of our honor? Because he labors and labors and Hebrews says is laboring still even enthroned in heaven. He is interceding for you. He is your high priest. He is still laboring. Jesus is the elder that works and works and works. Even more, friends, Jesus is the only man to ever have no sin. We talk about exposing sin and stuff like that. Jesus was stripped naked, beat, spit upon, laughed at and mocked, ultimately hung up on a cross naked and died, though he had no sin. There should have been no offense found against Christ because there was nothing to accuse him of. He was the only one that was without sin. Yet, when God looked at him, he saw sin. Why? Friends, the beauty of the gospel is wrapped up in this. See, it says that at the end, all deeds will be exposed. Well, when Jesus's deeds were exposed, how come he didn't get treated with the honor that he should? How come he didn't immediately go and, and sit enthroned at the right hand of God? Why did he suffer as sin? Why did he die? Why did he suffer under death and the sting of death and even hell itself? Because of our sin. 
he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. See, that verse there at the end of 1 Timothy should scare the bejesus out of some of us because the verse says we're gonna stand before God one day and all of our sins gonna be exposed except if you believe in the person and work of Christ, there is no more sin over you. Where is your condemnation? There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. 1 Corinthians 15, oh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your curse? It is no longer to be found because when God looked at Jesus, he saw him as sin. So that when he looks at you, who actually has sin, he sees as the righteousness of God. This is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus is the true and greater elder that does what no elder in any church combined could do. For sure, the elders should sacrifice. For sure, they should serve and love. But Jesus actually fully sacrificed. He fully served and loved. And he got called out publicly before the whole world, though there was no offense that he truly did. He got called out for us, friends. Friends, this should stir up your affections for the Savior. God loves you so much that he would be willing to die for you that you may have his righteousness. We can now stand confident in Christ. Why? Because he was our punishment for us. So friends, this is how we should treat elders in the church, it says, right? If, if we're not in that position, we should aspire to be leaders, to be people who can lead, not domineeringly, but to be able to serve others. And, and we should honor those. But ultimately, Jesus is the true elder that is worthy of all honor. Let our hearts worship him, friends. I love you guys. Let's pray.